Well, good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to welcome you today to our service. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series on the topic of worship. For the next seven weeks, we are going to ponder what that word means. It's a word that we use a fair bit around church, but we don't always stop and consider its real meaning. So for the next couple of weeks, we will take a broad view of worship. We'll look at a passage this morning in the Old Testament and next week, Pentecost Sunday in the New Testament, and it'll help us wrap our heads around worship generally. And then the following five weeks, we will focus on specific parts of our worship services. We can get so used to doing the things that we do on Sunday mornings that we forget why we do them. Or maybe you're new to Christian worship and you've never had it explained to you. So why do we have a call to worship? Why does the service start that way? Does the prayer of confession really matter? After all, it's super short. What about the longer prayers that come after the sermon? Um, Thanksgiving and intercession. Uh, what, are, what are those words, especially intercession? What does that mean? So we are anticipating a time, and we hope it won't be too long, when we can gather together again in this room. And when you get out of the habit of doing something, at least doing it together in person, uh, maybe it's an opportunity. I think we see it as that to stop and be more deliberate about it. Why do we do these things and, and why is it important for us to come back and to do them together? in a more fulsome way, in a, in a more significant way when we are in the room with one another. But this isn't just about Sunday mornings. The way we worship on Sundays is rooted in the deeper truth and reality of our whole lives, uh, about how we relate to God all the time, not just in our services. Sundays shape us as a particular moment of discipleship. But worship does not stop here, nor does it start here, actually. Worship isn't limited to our services, and, and worship is definitely not limited to music, although we use that language, right? Sometimes we talk about worship as though it's just the music. Worship is how we approach God at all times. It's really what's happening in the whole universe. The rocks cry out in worship. All of nature sings praises to the Lord, we read in the Psalms. This is so much bigger than we often think about it. God is Lord of the universe. He created us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That's how the very first question and answer of the Westminster Catechism describes the purpose of human beings. It's what our souls need most of all. So let's pray before we hear scripture read by one of our young people from the Profession of Faith class. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask that as we listen to your word read, that, that you would lead us into the, the depth of who you are, that we would recognize you and that we would receive your love, your grace, your truth, and that Holy Spirit, you would make it real for us, that we would see that there's a relationship here like no other relationship we can ever enjoy or experience. So show us who you are today, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Good morning, my name is Lily McLeod, and our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 19. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah, 
to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim and the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened cow. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. I was joking with Lily over supper last night that we had to give her a reading with a lot of hard Hebrew names to pronounce because she's a pastor's kid and so no one would think that there was favoritism. She didn't find that very funny. But she did a great job and if you were here today, there might have been audible support for that. That's something else that we miss right now. You know, profession of faith is an important moment in a young person's life. And sometimes people who are older than our, our current group of 12 taking the class also do profession of faith. We call moments like that, whether they happen in a young person's life or an older person's life, sometimes we refer to them as rites of passage. A rite or a ritual is one way that we make sense of our lives. It's how we can mark the important changes and developments that we experience. In our world, which tends to favor spontaneity and authenticity, we talk about ritual less than we used to. But without it, without that structure and those markers, there would be a kind of chaos and, and even a despair, I think, that would result. Imagine a world with no birthday parties, no graduations, no retirement celebrations, no family reunions. Oh, actually... 
We're kind of living through that right now, aren't we? The pandemic has done away with a lot of those markers, those rituals. But hopefully not for too much longer. I got my vaccination a few weeks ago. I went to the West End Rec Center and into the space where my kids used to play hockey and I waited. First of all, I waited in line and then I got my shot. I got the Moderna vaccine. And then I waited some more. I had to wait for 50 minutes before I could leave. When I got back out into the parking lot, I felt weird all of a sudden. Not physically, but it was like I'd rushed through this momentous occasion, this incredibly significant moment, which, which stood for, could symbolize the end of what we've come through. And I realized that, that I, I hadn't really noticed it. Uh, I hadn't stopped to value it, to celebrate it. And so in that instant, I said a quick prayer. I said, thank you, Lord, for this. And, and then I saw one of the staff people coming, coming out of the building, and I asked them. I asked them whether people ever express their relief, their joy, or, or celebrate in any way after getting their shot. And, and, and he said, not really. He said, we have a few people who express their happiness by shouting out or by whooping uh, with pleasure or relief. But he said, we're pretty Canadian and no one has really broken out into song or dance. As I drove away, I reflected on that. We have this basic human need to say thank you or to celebrate at times, but, but often we don't know how to give gratitude or we're not good at giving it, or, or we don't know who we should give it to. I mean, who do you say thank you to for a sunset or for spring? And we're not sure how to celebrate at times either. Well, worship is about all of those things, but also when it's true worship, when it's worship as the Bible teaches us to worship, it's about the harder stuff as well, the stuff we might rather avoid. Lament, grief, anger, confusion, and it leads to confession. Worship is about recognizing what's worthwhile in our lives. We get the word worship in English from the old English word worth. Worship is to see what God is worth and to give him what he's worth. It's to see and grasp his worth in such a way that you begin to live in accordance with it. It's to embrace the relationship and the harmony we were created for and to leave behind the loneliness and despair that too many people are stuck in. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to God. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. In our reading this morning, we meet King David at a key moment in his life, a, a rite of passage type moment. David has come a long way. You may know some of the story. From being chosen against all the odds to be God's anointed one when he was still a boy and a lowly shepherd boy at that, David beats the, the giant warrior Goliath. He eludes all of King Saul's attempts to assassinate him. And while he's still a fugitive, he pulls together an army and becomes this skilled commander. As we pick up the story here in chapter 6 of 2 of Samuel, David, the new king of Israel, has just chosen Jerusalem to be his capital city, and he has decisively defeated the, the age-old enemies of the Israelites, the Philistines. So this is his moment of triumph. 
Israel had wanted to be like the nations. Israel had wanted a king, a king like David. And here they find themselves. But there's still a lot at stake, actually. David has struggled recently to compete with the house of Saul and with other rivals for the throne. He's close, but one final scheme will ensure that he has achieved power, has consolidated his position. David knew that the presence of the Ark in Jerusalem would clinch his legitimacy. The Ark represented the presence of God, and it contained within it the law of God, the Ten Commandments on two tablets given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Those were the guidelines that God offered for how to live in right relationship with him, how to worship him. And so David sets out with an army, with 30,000 chosen men, an elite core of his warriors. It's a display of his strength. And we're going to look at three aspects of worship in this passage. First of all, reverence, how we are called to approach God. Secondly, renewal, how God changes us through worship. And thirdly, restoration, where worship leads. So David is praising God here because he's poised for a great success. Isn't that when things often go wrong for us? When we lose our bearings? We're tempted to forget about God when we find that we don't need him as much as maybe we used to. When our plans seem to be working out on our own. There are clear instructions in God's law in the books of Numbers and Exodus in the Old Testament for how the ark should be transported. And this new cart that we read about that they used to move the ark may have been a quick and efficient way to get it to Jerusalem, but the ark was not supposed to be treated like that, like like baggage or uh, based on what was convenient for the people who had possession of it. The ark had an incredibly special place. It was, it was to be moved by people and not just anyone. The Levites, uh, this, this family of priests, were the only ones who could move the ark and they had to carry it on their shoulders. So that when this man Uzzah reacts to a bump in the road the way he does, it may seem to us like the most natural thing. Who wouldn't jump forward to catch something precious that was about to fall? But the ark is different. The ark represents the mystery of God, the the awesome power of God, and it is inherently supernatural. And we know that God's ways are above our ways. Just as we cannot control God, so Israel cannot tame the ark, and King David can't bring it in line with his own agenda, what he wanted to see happen. Uzzah, the servant of David, does what comes naturally. He disobeys God's law, and God strikes him down. Now, that's still hard to accept, right? I I think most of us, maybe all of us, are still left asking why. Like, how does this happen? And this story raises difficult questions, questions to which we don't have answers But it also raises the question of, are we able to accept the mystery of God? Can we believe in a God that we do not understand? And that's a question that 
is especially important for us when we suffer. One thing we see here that, that we definitely know is that God's holiness is extremely important. We as human beings have this basic impulse to try to live independently of God, to hide from him, to disregard him. But that is the heart of our problem. It's our sin and our self-centeredness that cause so much damage and that ultimately lead to death and to hell, to separation from God. But God is always merciful and he reveals that most of all in Jesus Christ. Through his love, he draws us back continually to right relationship to him and, and to reverence in particular. The Bible says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And by fear, it means respect. It means awe. It means wonder. It means that we should not take God lightly or make him anything less than our highest priority. Worship is to see what God's worth and to give him what he's worth. And that requires reverence. But David's not so sure. He responds by getting angry with God and then he's afraid. First of all, he's angry because not only has God killed one of his best leaders, but God has also messed up his plans to secure the monarchy. And then the fear comes, and not the healthy kind of fear we were just talking about with reverence. David must have wondered to himself, if God has done this, perhaps he intends to take away everything he's given me. God may be not on my side any longer, and, and I... I wonder if I can still trust God even. And so in that fear, out of that anxiety, he dumps the ark. He passes the danger on to someone else. He runs away and hides in his fortress in Jerusalem for three months. I think we can relate to that. You know, when we get hurt or when someone disappoints us, we often pull back from that relationship. When we go through a time of suffering or adversity in our lives, we tend to withdraw. Now, David could have stayed in Jerusalem indefinitely. He had a mighty army. He was king over a united Israel. He could simply have avoided the ark and so avoided God. It had been a long time since Israel had had the ark, and he could have proceeded without that. I think Saul, the king before him, would have done so. But in spite of this setback, in spite of the death of his servant Uzzah, David has not lost favor with God. He chooses to trust God, and as he does that, he risks more humiliation. Why would he take that risk? Well, perhaps because he never completely turned away from God during the months he spent in Jerusalem wrestling with his doubts. In spite of his anger and disappointment, David's prayers may never have dried up. That's the David we know from the Psalms, right? This book of poetry in the middle of the Bible, which teaches us how to talk to God, how to experience a relationship with God. In the Psalms, David shakes his fists at the heavens. He demands a response. He's open and honest with God about his suffering, and he's confident that God welcomes his lament. He is not withdrawn. He's vocal. He's active. Maybe David's fear prompted more than a withdrawal to the safety of Jerusalem for those three months. When he asks the question in verse 10, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? 
we may be hearing something more than simply frustration. David has been reminded of who he is and who God is. It's, it's a kind of reality check. His pride has been challenged. And it's also a moment of grace. It's an opportunity for him to repent, to change his mind, to start over. God wants to renew us through worship. It's not about a reverence that focuses on following the rules. It's about our hearts. God cares where we are in our hearts in relationship to him. And David's change of heart is evident in the way that when he goes back to get the ark, he does not draw it on a cart. The second time, he carries, he sees that it is carried. He sees that it is done according to the way God has laid out requirements around the ark. And there's a sacrifice that's made from the very beginning as well. We, we saw from verse 1 of this chapter that David rushed into it. He doesn't seem to have prayed, even the way he did before he went to battle with the Philistines in chapter 5. And then, the dramatic moment in this story, David gives himself over to God. He dances before the Lord with all his might. He holds nothing back. You can almost imagine him thinking, Lord, I will submit to you even if you should strike me dead. Dancing is not something we do every day. But when we dance, we're often responding to music. It's a joyful response to rhythm of one kind or another. At its best, dance is unselfconscious, and we are self-conscious people, so I think that's why we don't dance as often as we could. When, when my kids were younger, we used to love how they would break into dance when, whenever a song with a good beat, a danceable beat, came on the radio or we played it at home. You couldn't help but stop and marvel at their freedom in that. I, I can remember going to high school dances and the awkwardness of that is, is maybe something I'd rather forget. Now, my kids no longer dance like they used to, although Chloe actually does. Um, but they've, to a greater or lesser extent, they, they've lost that innocence they had when they were small. And dancing does become more awkward as we grow aware of people watching us, as we grow self-conscious, as we, as we come to realize that people do judge us as we get older and with that experience. After all, when we dance, we take a risk. We make ourselves vulnerable. It's a lot easier to stay on the sidelines. But that is not the path that leads to renewal or to hope. Through Jesus, God gives us a new and living way to draw near to him and to receive his love and to be renewed in his grace and gifting and purpose. It would only have been natural for David to have stopped dancing after the incident with Uzzah, for him to play it safe before the Lord, but also before his enemies who were watching on in that crowd as he drew close to Jerusalem. And those enemies included one of his wives, Michal, the daughter of Saul. Instead, David, who was king, let's remember that, does without the finery of his royal robes, and he dances wearing only a linen ephod, a plain tunic. 
He is a changed man. He has been made new. There's a transformation that's taken place. He suffered a great loss. He experienced a tremendous setback. But when he dances, he comes out of hiding and he moves into the light. He moves into the presence of God in a new way. And most of all, as he does that, he embraces humility. He surrenders his self-importance, his military might, his expanding empire, his towering capital city. And it's as if he says to God, I am yours. And that's the renewal that leads to restoration. We've seen reverence, we've seen renewal, and now when the ark arrives in Jerusalem, David does two things that make it clear that he sees God's restoration coming. First of all, he worships God by offering sacrifices, and then he blesses the people. He puts God first, and next he cares for his people. He sets a trajectory for his reign of not using his power for his own self-interest. Worship and mission should always go hand in hand. We call it public worship for a reason, not just because our Sunday morning services are open to the public, but because public worship is for the people. It's for wider society. It's not just for us. Worship changes our hearts. It brings personal renewal and it brings renewal for our community, our congregation. But it also leads to peace and justice as we are sent out to reflect God's love in action. I got an email from the daughter of one of our seniors at Courtright this past week. Her mother um, had celebrated a significant birthday recently, but couldn't have people over for a party. And so she had asked people from our congregation to convey their congratulations and to put together a, a, and she put together a book of those greetings as people sent them in using email. And lots of those greetings arrived as well as flowers and some phone calls. And, and she wrote to me after the fact about the wonderful impact uh, all of that love had on her mother who had been feeling lonely as a lot of our seniors are right now, how her mom had tears running down her cheek as she read all the notes as she knew that God's love was reflected in the love of his people for her. When David distributes food to his people in verse 19, he sets a priestly tone of using power for the sake of love and for the common good, rather than simply for his own self-promotion. That's restoration. And that's what flows out of worship as the Holy Spirit brings fruit in our lives that extends to others. If you read on past what we read this morning, at the very end of this chapter, when David gets home, his wife Michal attacks him. She describes how he distinguished himself going around half naked in view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. It's pure and nasty sarcasm, and it's toxic to marriages among other relationships. David's reply points to further restoration. In verse 22, he says, I will celebrate before the Lord. He says this in reply to Michal, his wife. He says, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. He's got the right idea. This is part of the transformation he's experienced. He's talking about humility. 
And that is what paves the way to restoration in our broken relationships. It's not clear if his relationship with Michal was restored. We're left wondering about that. But this is how Jesus transforms not just our own lives, not just our church community, but also as we worship him, as we grow in relationship with him, uh, the relationships we have with others. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the way of Jesus. Our worship is only possible because Jesus came down. It's only possible thanks to the humiliation that the Son of God willingly endured at the cross on behalf of the whole world. Jesus deals with all transgression and all injustice by, in effect, taking the place of what we see happen with Uzzah in this passage. He takes on himself the wrath of the Father against sin. God dies instead of us in our place. And we respond with worship through this new and living way that Jesus opens up, recognizing who God is and what he has done for us. He laid down his life for us, and he is worth it. He is worth all of our worship. So worship is about reverence, renewal, and restoration. We start by trying to do it on our own, on our own terms, getting our own way, seeking our own salvation. But God gets our attention. And as he does that, we're reminded that reverence is necessary. But it's not sufficient. It's not enough. Only by God's grace can we experience the renewal that comes as we turn back to him and open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. This is personal renewal. But worship is never just personal or individual. As we see David dance before the Lord and in the assembly of his people, we realize that worship is public too, and it brings restoration in relationships and in our wider society. Worship and service, worship and mission, they go hand in hand. So I want to leave you this morning with a simple question that does begin with you and God, but extends more widely as we've talked about. How is God inviting you to draw near to him today? How have you been hurt? How have you withdrawn in your own heart, in your own personal relationship with him? How are you keeping your distance? And how might you step out in faith? Step out in a risky move, perhaps, to trust him and to enter into the freedom of the dance, the freedom of worship, the freedom of receiving his grace and his love as the beloved son or daughter of God that you are today. Let's take a moment in silence to consider that question. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you love us and you want to have a relationship with us. Draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.